morning, everybody, and welcome to another uh, SECPA session. Um, during this time of um, social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day, and in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Uh, today we have with us from Ottawa, Marwa Awad, um, and she'll be talking on why should people give money to the UN's World Food Programme or other aid agencies when there's so much need in developed world countries. Marwa Awad works as a humanitarian aid communications officer with the World Food Programme in areas of conflict including Iraq, Syria, Burkina Faso and South Sudan. In the past decade, she has seen how investing in WFP food assistance operations means investing in keeping people alive and healthy, as well as limiting their inclinations to flee elsewhere, which disrupts both local and international economies. Supporting WFP also means helping build the resilience of communities so that they can get back on their own feet. Marwa is coming to us from her home in Ottawa after serving in hotspots in the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you, Annalise, and thanks everyone. I'm happy to be here with you. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to be able to talk to you about uh, the work that uh, I've been part of, working with the World Food Programme in uh, areas of conflict. Uh, specifically, I focused uh, on the Middle East, but I've also had uh, the um, opportunity to be visiting countries in uh, West Africa, in the Sahel region, Burkina Faso mainly, and also South Sudan in uh, Central East Africa. So uh, what I want to do is talk to you about, you know, the hot topic and then have a discussion with you about COVID-19 and how it changed pretty much everything. Uh, so not just our daily lives, but also the way humanitarian agencies are able to carry out their work. Uh, so we should be going to the next slide. So when COVID-19 hit uh, Europe, I was in Rome, Italy, and I couldn't help but notice how the isolation that I was part of and my colleagues were experiencing, the restrictions on movement, um, also news of people and neighbors losing their livelihoods uh, or their lives uh, uh, coming down to a halt and people being separated from their families and loved ones. I couldn't help notice that similarity between all these experiences that we were living uh, in a developed country such as Italy and what uh, the internally displaced, the war-torn people that I've worked with in the past years have been living through for decades. So our lockdown was just, to me, I realized it's just a glimpse of um, an ongoing lockdown that millions of people are unfortunately going through. And this connection then made me realize that uh, it's really important to be able to talk to communities, talk to friends around me, and to pass the message that now is the time that we really have to have global solidarity. But let's then go through uh, the the story and what what this crisis is. So, 
internally displaced people are people who are uprooted or forced away from their home uh, within their country because uh, of man-made conflict. And in the past uh, six to seven years, I've been uh, working day to day with or meeting with families that have lost everything. And the, the potential that's lost is tremendous. And it's actually too much uh, of a burden to to witness on a daily basis, especially in countries like Syria and Iraq, where there was a system in place. There was a country, people had jobs, people had a certain uh, uh, living standard, and they've lost everything. And now they uh, have been reduced to, you know, a life of quiet desperation. Um, images such as you know, children kicking dirt uh, in, uh, in camps, uh, idle with nothing to do, not going to school, not being able to go to school because their schools have been bombed. Um, these, these are all uh, realities that will not change to the better on their own or very quickly because uh, destruction usually takes a long time to be turned around. Uh, so I, I want us to recognize that um, we know that things will improve here. Of course, there are difficulties. People have lost their livelihoods. And people's movements have been restricted and we're unable to, to see our families. But we also have this hope and we know that our countries and our governments are there for us. And country like Canada and other countries in the West have rolled out stimulus packages to support uh, people who are undergoing, uh, you know, the socioeconomic fallout from the spread of this pandemic. None of this, uh, none of these certainties are available, on the other hand, to the people who've been living in conflict. Uh, millions of people like in Syria, in Yemen, in South Sudan, in Burkina Faso, and across the world. I'm just naming the countries that I physically visited and, and remember very well. Uh, so, next slide, <laughs> before I forget. So that point about... Uh, recognizing that we're lucky is really crucial because then we're able to put things in perspective and we're able to see that yes uh you know there is tunnel now perhaps we can also extend that hope uh to to those who who don't have it um we before i get into uh what we're worried about I want to quickly tell you what things were like. What what was the narrative that that humanitarians were sharing with uh, with the world uh, to raise awareness before COVID nineteen hit? So, in the past four years, there has been this triangle of despair. It's a triangle of despair, including man made conflict, poverty, and climate change. And these three culprits have been sweeping across many countries across the globe and affecting the lives of many, disrupting the lives of many, killing uh, people by the thousands, if not the hundreds of thousands. And at that time, our figures, the figures of need that we were seeing or we were tracking were the following. 60% of the hungry people, let me go back a bit. So we tracked about nearly a billion people on the planet, on Earth, were um, food insecure. So they were unable to provide food them, uh, for themselves. So they were either one of two categories, 
acutely hungry or um, uh, people who uh, have, sorry, just losing track here. Yeah, so people who are either acutely hungry or people who are extremely food insecure. And these two differ in the sense that some families or many families would have um, would wake up one day and find themselves on the brink of starvation. They've lost everything, while other families ha go through this chronic hunger of going to bed every day without a meal uh, or skipping meals in order to provide for their young ones. And we tracked 60% of those hungry people live in war-torn countries. Uh, Syria and Yemen are classic examples of how uh, uh, this kind of hunger and conflict were really enmeshed together um, and, and causing this, uh, the, you know, this colossal damage and colossal need. With the advent of COVID-19, things get worse because not necessarily because the pandemic is spreading and people are catching, in developing countries, people are catching this pandemic. Of course they are, but in some uh, countries like in Yemen, we cannot really track because there is no infrastructure and, and the health system has been weakened to its knees. So we know there is a spread, but we're not really witnessing a mass uh, spread of the pandemic. But what we are afraid of is that this will ultimately lead to socioeconomic dangers that might uh, drive people more and more into desperation. So the average farmer in South Sudan, for example, no longer has the money uh, because the supply routes and the movement uh, within the country has been disrupted. So that farmer, that lone farmer, no longer has the money to buy seeds or fertilizers. Uh, people who are civil servants or they are street vendors, they are no longer able to go out and resume their work. And as a result of this loss of livelihoods, uh, we expect the following numbers. I don't know if you, uh, if we can get to the, um, the slide with the graph. So we're expecting the numbers uh, of people who are acutely hungry to rise to 265 million people by the end of 2020 if uh, no aid is is pumped into these countries through the organizations that are there on the ground uh, uh, saving lives. And so um, there is also a risk of a further or an added 130 million people who could very likely become food insecure. So they're not necessarily, uh, they're, they're not a case of uh, losing, it's not a case of losing their livelihoods necessarily, but it's perhaps a case of having less money or the value of their currency in which they use has gone down and there's a price hike in food and essentials. And so therefore they're unable to uh, provide to themselves and their loved ones a sufficient meal. So unfortunately the numbers are harrowing. We're estimating that 30 million people could die of starvation during this pandemic if the World Food Program loses uh, funding or the ability to keep supporting people. Uh, the World Food Program is the largest organization in the world that combats hunger. Combating hunger is our main mandate. In addition, of course, to uh, improving and treating uh, nutrition uh, or mal malnutrition amongst uh, the populations in need. Okay. Next slide, please. 
So given that there are long-term consequences to the conflict, even before COVID-19, we know that COVID-19 and, and that you know, specter of that pandemic will ultimately bring those developing countries further down to their knees and down you know, the, the, the path of no return even, just a, a very serious spiral to uh, more chaos and more conflict. And this is where we come in and say countries that have the ability to fund, even though, yes, these countries are also suffering, uh, but the level of suffering is uh, not as drastic so that luckily uh, we, as countries in the West, have the ability to fund uh, these countries, such as you know the countries that are struggling in, in um, the global south or in uh, third world nations. I wanted to tell you quickly what WFP is doing specifically. Um, we're working on the front lines to maintain the delivery of food assistance. And we always like to say we're saving lives and changing lives. So what does that mean? Saving lives is the really the essence of WFP, has been the essence of WFP for a long time because we are first responders. So we're always the first ones on the ground whenever a crisis of any sort hits. Uh, uh, climate change, hurricanes, uh, conflict. As soon as there is access, we're on the ground there to deliver food because food is, is the most essential uh, commodity that is needed to, you know, to, to support people who've, who've been uh, recently affected. On, uh, uh, we uh, are operational in 100 countries and every year we reach close to 100 million people across those 100 countries. 30 million of our recipients of the 100 million people will not, would not survive without our food. So we, li we literally are keeping 30 million people alive from day to day. So this is how essential this uh, life-saving aid is in the form of food rations or uh, vouchers. Because some areas that, that are, uh, have been hit or affected by conflict or climate change still have functioning markets. And so WFP has this complex programs that uh, move into, there are, you know, they're rolled out into a given country and uh, allow people to have a semblance of normalcy by giving them uh, vouchers and, and the like and this kind of support. So it's not always in-kind support of, of a food box, but uh, it definitely is um, uh, an, an essential aspect of what we do. Now, an, an interesting tidbit is that uh, we distribute 15 billion food rations every year. And according to our in, internal math, the average cost for each ration is 31 U.S. cents. So it's, it's actually the cost is, is low and the ability to provide is high and the effect is, is extremely um, palpable. You can see that. In Syria, I, I, you know, I've been living there. I lived there for three years. The World Food Program was the largest on the ground. It is also the largest on the ground in Yemen and in South Sudan. And these countries would not survive without this um, constant uh, support that we are, of course, receiving from donors and turning into uh, the supply chain that rolls in the assistance that we're then able to deliver. One important factor to, to consider is whenever there is a conflict, um, either of those three culprits, 
you know, the conflict because of hunger, conflict because of political uh, um, issues or matters or climate change. People, as much as they love being home and love staying in, in an area that they know very well and, and a place where they've grown all their lives, uh, you know, their survival mechanism kicks in. So if uh, a country is, you know, has fallen into the chaos of war and no assistance is provided and no survival mechanisms are available, people will up and go. People will migrate. And they don't do that because of, you know, they're not looking to self-actualize. They're not looking for an amazing job. I'm talking about much more basic survival needs. They're escaping to remain alive, whether it's to escape persecution or to escape hunger, just not being able to provide for their families. And in previous talks uh, that uh, I believe I saw a talk by Trevor Page, and uh, he made a good point of uh, countries uh, anywhere, but the example he gave was a country in uh, uh, a given country in Africa. Um, the elders wouldn't necessarily travel, you know, the mother that's desperate because she's unable to to farm her little plot of land because no rain is coming and the drought is, is killing everyone. Uh, she will not necessarily go, but her son will make that uh, dangerous trip across the sea and the ocean to to find uh, uh, succor in uh, in a country uh, that is functioning, a country that's uh, safe. Our figures show that for every one percent of a rise and increase uh, in hunger because of conflict or climate change or you know extreme poverty, um, we get 2% uh, increase in migration. So the hungrier a, a people get, the more likely they are to up and go. Unless, of course, they stop being hungry or aid moves in and people provide assistance. Uh, next slide. One key thing that we do at WFP is that we analyze um, the markets. We, we analyze food, the levels of food security or insecurity in a country, because we need data to, to be able to then ascertain, should we, should we move in? Is this, is this a situation that can be manageable for short time or an extended time? Uh, so that's very important to have this sort of information. And to have this kind of information we have to have boots on the ground. And that's what's amazing about WFP. It's an 18,000 strong um, uh, body of humanitarians who exist or live in 100 uh, countries. And the operations are colossal so that they are driven by monitoring uh, uh, analyses as well as um, physical assistance being delivered through a complex logistical um, arm, which we also uh, are responsible for. So WFP is kind of, you know, the transport service for, for the entire UN. So we don't just deliver our own food, but also the, the assistance and the, um, the aid from other uh, sister agencies. And I wanted to highlight, highlight that to you because very often we get the, the question or the concern of how do you know food is getting to the people who need it most? Well, the answer is we are there on the ground. And if we're not, if there are areas that are uh, hard to reach, we call them, we have partners. And these partners are trained. Um, you know, they come to us or we go to them. We train them so that they're able to carry out 
the, the program that we have, any given program. And one of the key things that we do is um, we don't just identify an area of need and send food there, but we also uh, work hard to identify the level of need within that given area. So, you know, for example, in Syria, we do our best to prioritize those who are more vulnerable than others. So, and, and we, have, we have a scheme or a scale of uh, a vulnerability scale that allows us to prioritize, for example, female-headed households, women who've lost their, their husbands or, you know, their, their, their male uh, family members and are left to their own devices, have children, and also homes that have the disabled, uh, disabled people who've been injured by war or also people who are elderly. So it's very important to know that um, when, when we get the funding, we then have to analyze very well how this uh, uh, funding is going to be distributed. I want to talk a bit about changing lives aspect because I've talked about, you know, the, the saving lives one of rolling in with the trucks and, 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 and feeding people on the spot. Uh, changing lives here has to do with uh, development aid. It has to do with a long-term vision that uh, humanitarian organizations, including the World Food Program, have to be able to uh, allow a community to rebuild its resilience, its sense of resilience and ability to bounce back. And this is very important in, in, to, to establish in countries that, as I was saying earlier, they already had in the past a system or, or a, 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 a structure that sustained them. They already had jobs, they had infrastructure, they had um, a private sector, uh, they, they had uh, safety nets. So when we move into a country, we're not just looking at you know, the immediate uh, handout that we give, but we also identify areas where if we just you know, give it a push or, or we support it, that safety net, then the country and the people are able to eventually get back up on their feet. In Syria, uh, school feeding is an amazing program. Uh, we're feeding now about a million children. Not now, now, because unfortunately with COVID-19, schools have been, uh, um, uh, you know, suspended. Uh, and so children are not attaining that. But before COVID, we were able to roll out this program and to keep children in school. And something very important was this gender equality that we really cared about. Uh, because in countries uh, in the Middle East and Africa and perhaps elsewhere, uh, it's always uh, easier for the family to uh, keep uh, their, their female uh, children, the girls, at home or to marry them off quickly. The World Food Program is aware of this. And then what we do is we incentivize the family to send both their boys and girls to school and we give them a voucher, we give them uh, uh, food assistance so that the children continue in their enrollment. And we're seeing, uh, or we have seen, a great improvement in Syria and in other countries around the world. We also have school feeding program in, in South Sudan and the improvement and Burkina Faso. And the improvement that I'm talking about is, A, the awareness that education is important. In South Sudan, for example, I was really um, uh, amazed uh, by you know, speaking to many women who, mothers who did not have an education. However, their children were going to school. And, 
and they they really made that connection that oh you know I missed out on an education but you know the, those young ones better get it uh, and, and and this is thanks to this assistance that we give uh, and it also has this awareness raising component and so we're hopefully looking at a future where more and more children uh, around the world are are getting the education unfortunately now in terms of the figures that we've been tracking COVID-19 um, affected about 1.6 billion children and youth uh, because of the school closures in about 190 countries. Before that, when things were, you know, the norm, the norm of, you know, that triangle of the conflict and the climate change and the poverty, we were reaching 17.3 uh, million children around the world with uh, school meals. Uh, next slide. Now, I'm not sure if, if uh, you guys are looking at a slide called Share the Meal. Are they, Annalise? Or? Slide 11? Share the Meal slide. What, what, number, so, what number is oh. that? <laughs> okay, uh, let me see. Just a minute. Uh, uh, so, a seven. Okay. Yeah, if, just go back to it if it's not. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I, I wanted to highlight share the meal because it's it's a it's a really innovative way to feed someone uh, to provide uh, you know a meal a good diet to to a child uh, and it doesn't cost much and it's on an app so how easy is that and the I, I wanted to highlight that because our figures show that it only takes 50 cents, so 50 US cents to feed uh, per day to feed one child. So that's about $182.50 a year. It's really nothing, right? I mean, people can, can, can see how little uh, uh, of our money, I mean, thankfully the you know, currencies in the West are, count for something, they have value, but we can see how little uh, money or resources we can we can give if we choose to give it can feed uh, people who are desperately in need. The bigger argument is it's always cheaper to provide assistance to people in their own country of need than to sit back, watch, hum and haw. You know, should we support? Should we not support? and then not address the issue. And then the issue becomes a compounded one. Migration trends increase. People leave their homes and their countries, and then they go into, you know, out of desperation, they go into new countries where, you know, the cost of living is higher. So it actually makes sense. The, the argument is not just a moral imperative of we must help one another. It's also the fact that it's in our interest, of course, to you know, support countries that are in need because, you know, one way or another, this 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 uh, problem will come to us, especially pandemic. Um, but also it's it's a lot cheaper to to start uh, early and to commit, uh, uh, you know, the, the humanitarian funding that is needed to support uh, a country or any given area. I want to talk uh, a bit about what WFP has been doing in terms of um, COVID-19 response. So we are a food uh, agency primarily, 
but we wear also a different hat and that hat is the logistics hat so we're the transport services for the entire un and that's really amazing and it goes hand in hand with the identity of the world food program as a first responder because you know you want to get there you don't just want to have the resources and 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 everything in the warehouse and sort of you know not be able to deliver so we have been the backbone of the global COVID-19 efforts to move things along and to get a network of uh, hubs, um, cargo uh, air, um, air links, and the medevac services. So everything from you know, the gloves and the masks that humanitarian workers need, the PPE, uh, the, 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 the medical equipment that is needed to allow humanitarians to stay on the ground in those areas of need uh, and to carry out their jobs and also give them the protection to prevent any transmission of, uh, of this uh, virus. So without these services, lives will be lost. Um, the flights right now, we know, I mean, we hear in the news that uh, some airlines are, are, you know, coming back into action, but if you actually take away WFP's role as as logistics, if there's no funding for us to keep carrying uh, on with this with this role, uh, there would be a huge loss to the international community in terms of being able to keep things moving and prevent any any sudden collapse. Uh, so what have we done? We have set up a comprehensive system. Uh, and it's a network that uh, enables this global response to the pandemic through airlifts. So we have airlifts from particular hubs that carry uh, cargo and deliver to, to areas of extreme need. And we also keep receiving, you know, requests for flights from, from, from other agencies. And we've had help from countries such as the UAE and Canada in uh, in being able to transport uh, um, uh, uh, medical equipment as well as uh, you know the the other necessities to uh, prop up the health systems of the countries where we're working. So right now we're open for business and we we are actively delivering for ourselves and on behalf of people. But yesterday. Um, you know, experts and seniors of the World Food Program put out a call, a warning call, saying that if, if, if we don't get the necessary funding to keep this uh, logistical arm moving, we might have to shut down. <clears throat> and that's by uh, at the end of July. So uh, it's, it's pretty intense because um, just as we were able to keep collapse of, of countries and health systems at bay, there's been a simultaneous increase in need and a surge in need. More and more countries, country offices, agencies are asking for our help. And this is increasing the costs. And we've only been um, uh, uh, funded by about 14% funded. And what we need is much more than that. So I'm just trying to find the figure. I believe it's around the 900, yeah, it's 965 million is needed to continue with this very important and essential um, logistical uh, solution and um, service. Now, uh, slide six. 
Can you go to slide six? That's a... Just want to quickly talk about Canada's contributions. Canada has donated in the past five years and donated to uh, uh, WFP for about a dozen countries uh, the amount of 1.7 billion. And this includes Syria, Yemen, Lebanon, uh, and countries across Africa. Uh, when, when we look at a donor and we try to uh, gauge whether you know the donor is 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 uh, is interested in supporting and and how much can we rely on this? We don't look just at the amount of of money that the donor is giving, but also the predictability of that funding. So um, it's great to get a huge amount, but if it's a one-off, one-time uh, assistance, uh, you know, check or or agreed upon amount. Uh, it doesn't really allow for this continuation of, um, you know, looking forward to uh, certain funding that we'll be using, we will be using to continue the rolling out or the maintenance of certain programs. So I'm saying this because Canada has been a very predictable, very committed donor to the World Food Program. And in 2019, last year, Canada ranked as uh, one of the top 10 donors for the World Food Program. Canada ranked number seven, um, and the, the seventh largest donor, that is. And that's really important, and we're extremely grateful for this, as well as to the other countries that have been always there and giving us the assistance that we need, uh, whether it's on this uh, rolling basis or even, even when there is urgent need, such as you know the need that we have now with COVID-19. I'm just going to wrap up. Uh, want to wrap up by telling you uh, a story, just to uh, relate to you some of the the need that exists. Um, and I'm going to use a story from Syria. Uh, in uh, in one of the countries in an area called East uh, Ghouta, I met a, after the siege was lifted. I met a, a, a man who had lost his family and uh, through the bombing bombardment. And he survived and his young child survived. And I was really moved by how this man still had hope. And I was a bit, you know, I, I thought, wow, you know, you've lost everyone all of a sudden and you have a young child, you probably can't raise it on your own. You know, but he still had hope that, you know, that, that, that he will be able to, to get to a better place. Not, you know, figuratively, not necessarily, you know, uh, physically. And I wrote a, a short story on him. And what's amazing is I got two uh, emails from two Canadians who were asking, how can we help? And we call that individual giving. Uh, it's not the donor countries. Now it's the individuals. Um, people were moved by that, that story of this man that they reached out and they said, you know, how can we help to support and I really want to uh, drive this point because, as I said, the support from an individual can be so small, but yet it will go very far. Uh, if I have more time, there is a, a story that I also want to share with you. And I don't really mean to, to end on a sad note, but um, there, there is a Syrian woman that I met who was so poor. She told me she put up her daughter for adoption. 
so the the father had uh, died uh, in the fighting and uh, she she had other children but the youngest one was so weak and frail she didn't know what to do with her she went to an orphanage and uh, she she left the daughter there and she told me look I go to visit every day but of course you know the psychological trauma of the war is one thing and then the trauma of you know a child uh, uh, losing its mother not really knowing why even though the mom is there but uh, the child is is not with the mom was was really moving to me because it it, it showed me the the de- the level of desperation uh, that that people will reach when uh, conflict is protracted and it it's not ending and thankfully this woman does receive assistance now uh, from the World Food Program. So I'll end here. And uh, if you have any questions or uh, you want to start the discussion, please go ahead. Thank you so much for your very engaging talk. Um, We have quite a few questions in the queue, so I'll just start right away. Um, Kurt Peterson, does the WFP also work with local farmers and food producers, enabling them to become better equipped to grow food and meet the nutritional needs of the region? Absolutely. Now that that uh, 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 this modality of of assistance is the changing lives one. It's the enabling of the farmer and the community to uh, be able to provide its own uh, sustenance. I saw this in in South Sudan uh, to a great extent. Uh, we have programs that uh, provide the the farmers with the fertilizers they need and the seeds and enable them to grow their own crops uh, to you know to to eat from it and to sell the the extra in the local on the local market. Uh, but there has been climate change, you see. so climate change is is a challenge to us. So we've moved in also uh, with um, uh, mechanisms or, or, or teaching farmers ways of, of farming. Uh, there is a way called the half moon, which allows the, the farmer to, to trap the rain when the rain falls. It's like a, to catch it, like a catchment uh, to, to trap uh, the rain so that the, it sustains and nourishes the earth. Same thing in Syria. We have uh, this amazing program called the, the kitchen gardens. Um, and it's amazing because all you need is like a small plot of land, like about 1,500 meters uh, or square meters of land. And we move in, uh, provide the family with the seeds, the training, and the equipment so that they can grow their own food. And it's really amazing because the many of the uh, female-headed households became uh, um, the employees of others. I, I met one woman with a colleague of mine in an area called Sueda, and she, she, she turned from a woman who's desperate for assistance to, you know, a small-scale businesswoman. So she, she had her garden, and she had people from the local community taking the produce from her, uh, going to sell it, and then they split the profit. So that's really great. That was a, a, a big paradigm shift for her. Okay. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. What is the situation in Pakistan with the locust plague? Is there already a need for the WFP? If not, do you anticipate the WFP involvement there? And if so, how large? Okay, so (laughs) I'm just going to ask to put this question to a bit later (laughs) because I'm not very versed in Pakistan, but I do I do have the latest and I would like to just pull it up. So if we can move to the to the next question and I'll return to Pakistan. Yeah. 
The next question. Oops, sorry. The next question no comes problem. from Di Marco. Uh, Canada has the third largest charitable sector in the world, yet the competition for funds is fierce. With the WFP not known to the wider Canadian public, what is the WFP's engagement strategy for Canada? Good. Can you just repeat uh, the beginning? It says Canada has the third what? Lar the third largest charitable sector in the world. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Okay. Yes. So um, the World Food Program, I think, how many months was it? Maybe two in March, I believe, opened uh, a new office in Ottawa, in like my hometown of Ottawa. And we have a strong team uh, forming now. And this is big news because it really shows the investment of the World Food Program uh, in in this, you know, part of the world in North America. We have offices in the States, of course, but now we have one in Canada. And so this allows amazing proximity to parliamentarians, to uh, ministries that 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 we can work closely with uh, uh, through, you know, sharing information and also lobbying and the sort of uh, like the, the the sort of you know um, uh, raising awareness okay so we we, we had a um uh, like you know tw uh, 2020 hotspots uh, at the beginning of this year what are the hotspots across the world and this is the kind of information that we want to relay to 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 uh, uh stakeholders and people of interest so we're definitely working on that and we've started and you know, I'm, I'm, we're all really excited to see where we can go from there. Mm -hmm. Our next question comes from Bev Mundell. Bangladesh has one of the highest rates of NGOs providing assistance. Does the WFP work with these local NGOs? Yes. Yeah. Uh, WFP work with, works with local NGOs. I don't know them by name, but we have very uh, strong and complex programs in Bangladesh, and Canada is one of our uh, main uh, uh, funders or donors uh, in in that part of the world. So uh, definitely, and also, um, I'm just trying to get the Pakistan one while we're here. Uh, um, can you move on to the? The next question? Um, Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Knut Peterson, many organizations are helping feed the hungry of the world, especially religious ones. Does WFP try to coordinate all, these, all such donations, or do these organizations have their own networks? Okay, well, I mean, definitely... Um, you know, we we strive to work with everyone. The really the um, the 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 vetting process has nothing to do with you know religious versus secular. The vetting process is how much uh, know-how do you have on the ground and how much reach. So uh, in Syria, we do work with uh, with Christian uh, with NGOs that have that that uh, faith mandate so so i would say definitely i just don't know the names of 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 the ngos but we never really uh, uh differentiate uh, along these lines 
And the training, I just so say this, the training that we give is, is to allow the NGO to carry out our work as if we were on the ground. That's a really key point. So we invest a lot in uh, any given NGO, showing them the ropes uh, and, and working with them and ensuring they have systems that collect and captures the data that we need to, you know, to, to then provide uh, uh, with assistance. I will quickly address Pakistan since I uh, finally found it. I don't have much to, to say on this, but um, uh, what, what the latest that we have is that we are scaling up our uh, assistance in terms of uh, uh, food deliveries and also the, the, the deliveries of, of, of health, uh, um, deliveries of what's needed for, for uh, health systems. And this is to cover uh, an additional 1.2 million people that we you know, fear are likely to face uh, acute hunger and just not be able to, to provide for themselves. And this is because of COVID-19. But before, before this happened, uh, the World Food Program has been, has been working in Pakistan and providing assistance in, in a very complex way, covering school meals as well as uh, uh, just food assistance and also the, 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 the resilience building activities. Great. And um, Mark Goodall has a second question. Canada is the seventh largest donor. I think you mentioned that in your talk. Is that per capita or as a country? As a country. As a country, uh, donating, it's our seventh largest. Okay. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Does the WFP provide a partner, provide or partner with other NGOs to provide female-focused reproductive health, specifically providing and or distributing female contraceptives to women in conjunction with food distribution? Okay. Um, so just a bit of background about WFP, like when, when we roll out our operations and programs. We definitely don't operate alone in any given country. We have a specific mandate. That mandate is uh, combating hunger or in, in, in any, like any form of hunger. So we have hidden hunger, which is like uh, nutrient de deficiencies and mal malnutrition, and also just not being able to get food. So the basic uh, hunger as well. And in, uh, in order to make sure that we're doing our, our job in that mandate, we link up with other NGOs, yes, uh, local and international, and we also link up with our uh, UN sister agencies. So uh, in terms of your question on reproductive uh, um, systems and, and health, we work very closely with UNFPA uh, in all the countries where we both exist. And I've seen uh, in Syria uh, and I know in Sudan as well, uh, the, the, the two organizations work hand in hand so that we are providing a comprehensive um, uh, service to, to a family. So the family kind of gets the food, gets the, 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 the medical uh, care for, you know, for the pregnant uh, mother. Now, in terms of uh, contraceptives, WP is not uh, involved in that, but we are involved in this concept of family planning indirectly through our school meals program. The school meals program uh, carries within it this premise of gender equality and ensuring that uh, any barriers to education on women or girls is removed so that girls are sent to school and they're kept in, in class to learn to graduate 
And rather than being, you know, married off and having a family, uh, they can make more uh, aware uh, decisions and they can determine their own future. And like I said, um, sent, like I've seen people in South Sudan and even people in Syria uh, very much aware of that concept of education. So that's how we're supporting that uh, um, issue. Uh, Laurie Schultz has a follow-up question. Is there a vaccination program that works in conjunction with the food distribution? Um, yes. I mean, UNICEF uh, is, you know, the, they, they, they master this, the vaccination. And in, in Syria, I have seen it uh, uh, on the ground. Uh, there was an, an area uh, that was pretty much like, uh, I called it purgatory in, in, in one of the... Uh, 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 communications with the media. It's called Rukban, and it was in in uh, it's in southern uh, Syria, so just bordering Jordan. And there was about uh, forty five thousand plus people uh, stuck there, and we we had to drive for almost a full day to to get to to those people. We weren't just carrying food. UNICEF came along, and the actually had the vaccination equipment and they had the the portable um you know medical containers where children all children were vaccinated uh and this was ahead of a resolution that we knew was coming uh to allow these people to you know gradually get out of this this limbo that they were in so uh that's how we work hand in hand with them so literally it was us knowing and them knowing that you know in this location there's about 2000 children so we move in uh with our food assistance and they move in with the to, with the vaccination and we take our turns to deliver so we're definitely you know sister agencies in that regard it seems like i've missed a question by henning mundell so my apologies for that henning um while many countries regions are short of food and money does the wfp sell food to those who can't oh does the wfp sell food to those who can afford it no no we're not really in the business of selling anything like we're we're providing we're, we're a non-profit uh, organization so we we call out to donors and uh donors from governments and and now we're 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 um hoping that, that individual givers as well uh, tune in. Uh, we call, we, we send out calls to action and uh, require requirements for help. Uh, the assistance is given uh, for free, all of it. But of course, there are, you know, there, there, there is a structure to it. So, you know, uh, if, if a family is deemed after a certain period of time uh, sufficiently food secure, then, then the aid is shifted to other areas of need where where people are are very uh, vulnerable but yeah definitely no no sale of food our next question comes from laura schultz um in the area that use the food voucher system can you comment on the short and long-term impact of on the economy right so uh i've seen the 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 positive impact, I've seen it really as positive, <laughs> unless I'm too optimistic. Uh, the positive impact, I've seen it um, very much in Iraq and in, uh, in Syria. Uh, it, the voucher system helps 
the 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 already existing, you know, it, it helps to strengthen safety nets in in a given country. And in Syria, the uh, our voucher system is is given to families who are in an area where there is a function in mark, uh, functioning uh, market. Uh, so they're able to actually go and exchange their voucher for uh, food uh, and, you know, and produce. We have several types of vouchers. One uh, type of voucher is directly uh, uh, focused on uh, women who are uh, nursing and, and uh, women who are pregnant. And these women have to be in areas where we have shops that we contract um, so that they carry the, the products that we want to give. Of course, this is based on uh, knowledge from our nutritionists of what what the KCALs required are. And in the end, the positive impact is you're actually, you end up uh, enlivening the local economy and, and you end up um, pumping in this money that is directed and targeted at, you know, eating healthy and, and not something else. So definitely positive impact. Same with Iraq in areas where that was that were not uh, decimated and there were still markets around. We we still moved in with the with the voucher system. Our next question comes from Carol Kimoyo. At the local level, does the WFP hire slash pay local helpers, or do they rely on unpaid volunteer help? Uh, no, we we rely on um, national staff and international staff uh, because having uh, those two uh, perspectives is very key. So uh, of course they're volunteers, but but I mean the overall the the bulk of of our hiring or the bulk of the force on the ground in 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 these areas are they're all hired. Okay. Our next question comes from Trevor Page. Concerning Yemen, the Houthis are often in the news accused of misusing WFP food. Tell us about the issues there. So in, um, in areas of conflict where unfortunately there is you know, an increase in uh, proxy wars and then that leads to stalemates and uh, uh, you know, just a protracted conflict, which is Yemen at the moment and Syria in, in just one, one part of Syria. What tends to happen is food can become a commodity that is uh, used as a weapon of war or used as a, um, a bargaining chip. Uh, so it's very, very uh, unfortunate, but it happens I and mean, it's part of uh, human nature. And what had happened in, in the recent past in Yemen was uh, a certain party, which uh, Trevor and the Houthis, uh, were, th there was abuse of, of the aid or assistance. So, of course, the World Food Program is an organization that when it moves into a country, it has to work with the government or the de facto power on the ground. We just we don't operate on our own, you know, because we're not parachuted from outer space like we move in. We have to have dealings with the ministries in order to roll out uh, the safety net programs and to deliver the aid. So unfortunately, what had happened was there had been this consistent pattern of diversion of aid. So the assistance was not reaching 
the people who are uh, intended to be reached to for assistance and it was being hoarded by uh, this one uh, one party to the conflict in sensitive cases like that what we do is we begin to have very vigorous uh, dialogues with with the de facto uh, you know or the party of conflict and this is in order to find a resolution because we have to have the integrity as WFP to ensure that every dollar that a donor gives goes to the people who deserve it most. And we have this integrity. And uh, um, a case in point was when we were forced, unfortunately, to suspend the distribution of aid, or not distribution, but the delivery of aid uh, to to that uh, area because the the uh, this party uh, to the conflict was refusing to allow its its delivery to uh, families, you know, the c- uh, civilian population, and this kind of um, struggle uh, then allowed the other uh, side to fall back, and now we've resumed it. So it's really tough because normally when you stop the assistance, you get a lot of back press because then people are like, oh, people are starving. WFP just cut the aid. But we really feel it's necessary at times, and they're very, very key times, because then, uh, if, if not, then you are not going to be able to deter a, uh, a party to the conflict that's only focused on its own interests and not the interests of the people around it. Trevor Page has a second question. Iraq seems to be never-ending problem post-Sudan. Um, From a humanitarian perspective, do you see a continuing need for food aid? Yes, definitely there is a continuing need for food aid in those uh, countries in the Middle East, and uh, Iraq is definitely one of them. You're you're looking at a country that is struggling economically, uh, and there is a lot of dissent. Um, the, the, The systems in place there right now are sustaining uh, people in terms of food security and also the treatment of stunting. That was a, a key, uh, you know, I don't want to say feature, but problem of, of, of Iraq, especially in the southern uh, governorates. And so the continuation of aid there is important because we, we don't want to lose the gains that we've made in the past uh, uh, four to five years or or even longer after the, you know, the... Um, resurgence uh, of ISIS there and then, you know, uh, the whatever resolution that was reached over there. So it's very important to continue the aid and it's very important to continue the aid in other countries such as Yemen um, and Syria and, and Libya as well. Uh, it's, it's never really, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, uh, no amount is ever enough or the, there's always going to be a continuation of need because these conflicts, unfortunately, they take the people, they take their progress, they, 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 they push it back by decades. So like by 20, 30 decades. And it's important to then make sure that as, as we're part of the world, to make sure that some of our resources are given to, to support these people. Excellent. Um, we have four more questions in the queue. Um, okay. And I noticed that we're right sort of on 11 o'clock. Are you okay to continue and answer those formal questions? Yeah, sure. Do my Ex- best. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Uh, government subsidized food products 
imported from Western countries to survive the well-off people often make it difficult for local farmers to compete and sustain themselves. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so oh, I'll okay. reread it. I'll reread it. Government subsidized food products imported from Western countries to survive to service the well of people often make it difficult for local farmers to compete and sustain themselves. I guess that's more of a statement than a question, but maybe you'd like yeah. to comment on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what, what I want, I mean, that's a good point. Thanks for, for raising that. Um, what I want to say is that's why uh, the World Food Programme uh, really uh, prizes or values local production. If we're able to look, if we're able to support a people or a country to locally produce its own uh, foods uh, and its own means of, 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 of feeding themselves, then, you know, we've, we've created a, a, a know-how that canceled the need and it's not, uh, you know, it, it, it's not too expensive. And at the same time, you know, people get trained and people have a livelihood. This has been the case in, uh, in, in Syria, going back to Syria, with the school meals, the school meals in Syria, I mean, the, the, the majority of them are made in Syria. They're no longer imported from Jordan or Egypt or elsewhere. And also uh, the same thing with wheat. In Syria, we're looking to, to then be able to rely on local production for, some, for certain commodities. So, yes, I, I agree with you that it's important and we recognize that. That's why focusing on the local is, is, uh, is a win-win for all. Our next question comes from Buff Mendel. Do you work with failed states to help build infrastructure? Do, do we work with, sorry? Do we work with, do you work with failed states to help build infrastructure, a failed state? Okay. Yeah, okay, I see what you mean. Okay, so um, conflict, you know, obviously leads to mass destruction of, uh, of infrastructure and uh, like even, you know, post-apocalyptic uh, 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 rubble, uh, that, that's really what most of Syria is. And unfortunately, uh, same for Yemen and, and also Iraq. So, you know, after you've, you've given people food and assistance, naturally they, they move on to these other needs and, and concerns. Now, the World Food Program is solely focused on food assistance. That doesn't mean other needs don't exist, but we're, we're really focused on the provision of food so that people are able to survive. Um, the sort of like, I don't want to call it re reconstruction, but like the rehabilitation of uh, very important uh, 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 um, infrastructure such as, you know, schools is a necessity. I mean, we, we want children, we want the, the school feeding program to continue. Uh, people are, some people, many, are returning to their uh, places of origin, but their school is not, uh, is no longer functioning. I believe there's like a photo of a girl in a pink uh, sweater. She was looking at a damaged uh, building. That's her school. Uh, and, uh, and I told her, hey, do you go to school? She said, no, that's my school. And she's not really going to move away uh, from this area. So, a very important need and you know unfortunately it's a question that's um can be can become extremely political all i can say is uh our focus is has always been food and and maybe we're lucky as an organization because uh everybody agrees on food 
and and the need for food to exist and and be given so okay um we've got a question from trevor page you've written about the hopelessness of displaced syrians how do you see the humanitarian situation for these unfortunate people five years from now So looking ahead, um, uh, looking ahead, uh, a place, uh, a country like Syria is, is uh, you know, it, it sort of passed through the phase of active conflict, except now for the Northwest. And uh, this in itself is, is good because from a humanitarian perspective, you never want a... a a, a conflict to continue. You always want a serious ceasefire to exist so that you can move in and save lives. That's really our the lens that we have, that we look at the world uh, through. Um, in Syria, thankfully, active conflict has subsided in most of the country. And now it's this concept of uh, rehabilitation and also supporting people to rebuild their lives. Look, the potential is there. The World Food Program continues to be there and other agencies as well. Um, it's just a matter of navigating and making sure that, uh, um, you know, we, we as a humanitarian community say it like it is. If there is need that goes beyond, uh, that, that must go beyond uh, uh, basic uh, uh, needs, such as food and, and shelter, it, it has to be uh, voiced. And thankfully, we have a, uh, an important conference coming up in Brussels at the end of this month. And this is a pledging conference. So we're trying to get, as humanitarians, not just LVFU, we're trying to get Syria back on the map and say, look, yes, you no longer read those, you know, alerts and and headlines that, uh, you know, their, their areas or the whole country is on fire, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And, and just to add, like, in terms of Yemen, really what we need is a stop to the conflict. So that once the conflict stops, then that opens up the door of opportunity of saving uh, lives and then sustainable development comes after that. Okay, and that was it for today's, uh, for all the questions. Okay. We've got a couple of people, Laurie Schultz, thank you for your presentation and the work you You're do. Welcome. Uh, Bav thank Man you. Bav Mandel as well, thank you for speaking to us. You are doing important work. And then um, I want to thank you on behalf of SACPA for spending an hour with us here. Do you have any final so, parting words for us before I end the live stream? Um, it, first off, thank you so much for having me. Um, this is a great exercise because it's really important, like, I mean, for everyone in WFP and the aid agencies, but it's important for me because. Uh, I was a formerly a journalist, and I often at some point questioned, you know, why am I just writing about bad news? And when I was lucky enough to join uh, WFP and became a humanitarian, uh, it, it, that sort of question really stopped because I always feel like I have um, something good to share. And I, I mean, the good is there. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell people on behalf of the organization and along with colleagues and, and, and executive directors that, look, there is need and we're, we're all connected uh, one way or another. And as, as someone I heard once say, it's important that we stretch our 
uh, uh, empathy muscle. So it's important to every once in a while just look outside of, of our, uh, you know, immediate surroundings and, and see what's over there and help other people because really great things can happen. And as a planet or as many, con- as many countries that we are, we do have the resources to save lives and change lives. Okay, thank you very much. And um, You're welcome. Yeah, I'm going to end the live stream. But before I do, I just want to send out a reminder that on Monday the 22nd, so this coming Monday at 10 a.m., we have our AGM. And I hope that you will all tune in for that. And thank you very much.